Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Okay, stack body game. Shall I go first? Go, proceed. Okay, my category is the, the category... Um, the, and poised, the, about to write these down. All right, fine. It's, it, it's something I personally loathe, actually. It's, it's that category called alt-country. Oh, right, right, right okay. Usually denotes people who've taken design degrees, pretending that they are poor Appalachian, you know, hillbillies, and uh, you know, uh, or or oaky <laughs> refugees flowing the uh, you know, fleeing the dust bowl, heading for California. Anyway, but the, uh, the, the the sad thing about it is that is that it indicates also that country, country is something to be embarrassed about. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I mean let's be honest, country's fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Why do you have to be all country to be acceptable? Yeah, it's wrong. It's very yeah, wrong. It is wrong. Carry on. Anyway. They tend to have names that are somehow redolent of uh, a poverty. Yes, they, they, yeah, that's yeah, the sort yeah. of thing that they like. Okay, so we've got five names of alt country acts here. Okay, and one of yep. them is made up. Okay, here are the five: Trailer Park, yep. two, two Cow Garage, very good, yep. Golden Golden Smog. Yep. The Deep Dark Woods and Backyard Tire Fire. <laughs> okay. Trailer Park, Two Car Garage, Golden Smog, The Deep Dark Woods. Oh my goodness. Backyard I think Tire I know, Fire. I think I know, actually, because right. I'm just, I, I just get the feeling that I know which one you made up because it's just so funny. And it, it rather debunks the concept, which they probably wouldn't want to do. Trailer Park, I would imagine, is true. Again, austerity, uh, you know, the tough life. Two cow garages, garage is very, very funny. I, I go for that. Golden Smog, possibly okay. Deep Dark Woods, I would say definitely. It's got that kind of gothic uh, quality to it. But the one I think, Dave Hepworth, that you've made up, uh, I put it to you. And it's backyard tire fire because that is just <laughs> hilariously lampooning of the whole thing. Well, you're wrong. You're oh no, okay. Wrong. You're wrong. Backyard tire fire are genuine, as are the deep dark woods, as are golden smog, as is two car two car garage. The one I made up was trailer, trailer park. park. Very so good. Okay. Absolutely I brilliant. Win. Over to you. Over well, to you. I've got the. I was going to plunge you into the uh, into the into the dark satanic mills of Scandinavian black metal. Oh joy! So joy. I mean, try it. I mean, here they are, the six of them. One of them's uh, not real. Okay, there's Hellhammer. These are all Swedish or Norwegian. He- Hellhammer. Hellhammer. Okay. Right. okay. There's Gorgoroth. Like it's a city where the Winter Olympics take place. <laughs> Hellhammer. Go on. Sorry. Second there's one. Gorgoroth. Gorgoroth. Oh, yeah. Dissection. Yeah. yeah. All right. Dark Throne. Yeah. There's Burzum. <laughs> and there is Burzum. It's good, isn't it? It's chilly. It's, and it's, it's Bur- Burzum. It's in the potteries, isn't it? Um, <laughs> Burz- uh, and, it's, and there's Nazgul. 
So, so you got hammer. you got six, have you? I've got six. One okay. of them's a ringer. Hell Go hammer, on. Gorgoroth, Dissection, Dark Throne, Burzum, and Nazgul. Uh, well, I've got a clue. So I'm gonna I'm gonna plump for Hellhammer. Okay, no real. Real, real. I'm afraid. Now I would have thought that you might have spotted the ringer, which is obviously uh uh, Nazgul, because they are the, the dreaded uh, ring servants, servants of the Dark Lord Sauron oh, Middle Earth throughout the Second and Third Ages. As any fool know, <laughs> I'm thus crowbarred in there by me. Oh, very They're good. great names, aren't they? That's very good. Very, very good. very good. Well, talking of uh, talking of potential frauds perpetrated on the on on the on the public, have you followed this story of the uh, 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 of the lads? Um, well, Phil Collins in the air tonight has gone back in the. Oh job. yeah, the Williams brothers. The Williams brothers. Okay. Yeah. The Williams brothers. Williams twins. Um, these his brothers who posted this this video clip on YouTube of the two of them listening to "In the Air Tonight" by Phil Collins for allegedly the first time, and being kind of their jaws dropping when the drums come in at that very particular. Which is rather fantastic, actually. That moment, isn't it? It has to be said, it is brilliant. And it was an incredible drum sound and has been sampled a million times. But I know what you're going to say, because I'm, I'm going to agree with you. Can that be true that they have managed to negotiate a path through life without ever once hearing that record? They might not have been aware that that's what they were listening to, but how could you avoid actually hearing? I would have thought it's fairly unlikely, you know, because even if you weren't aware that it had been a big hit, it gets sampled all over the place. It turns up in, in movies. It'll probably be in, in commercials. You know, all kind of music travels around in all kinds of different ways nowadays, doesn't it? And it also doesn't just... The interesting thing about popular music nowadays, as opposed to 30, 40 years ago, is it doesn't, doesn't just have its moment of hotness and then disappears. It has a moment of hotness, but then it continues, doesn't it? You know what I mean? Music sticks around far longer nowadays than it ever used to do in the past. Completely. It's it's inescapable. Yeah, yeah. And so, and also, this is not clearly, this is, just think about the logistics of this. These guys are kind of, they've had a series of very successful YouTube clips of them allegedly listening to music, pieces, well-known pieces of music for the first time. So, what are we supposed to believe? Are we supposed to believe that right now, you know, while well, they're in bed at the moment because they're in the States, but, you know, in a few hours' time, the Williams brothers get up and they just sit, they establish themselves in a couple of chairs in front of a camera and then somebody plays them a series of legendary hits that they may not have heard. You know what I mean? Most of which are inter- most of which are kind of out of there. Bruce Springsteen's Dancing in the Dark or Hotel California or whatever. Most of them are interrupted after about five seconds by one or the other of them going, oh, I've heard this. You know, don't worry, next. I've heard this, next. And then, and then you suddenly get to one that they haven't heard and they go, oh, hang on. And then they record themselves. I mean, it's a preposterous idea. You know what I mean? Because you can, you can, you can, I mean, it, it's something that so much needs rehearsal, doesn't it? To make it does. like that work. It needs the two of them to sit there and agree which bit they're going to respond to. Yeah. It doesn't work if one of them goes off after 15 seconds and somebody else is planning to go in there after, after 25 seconds. It doesn't work at all, practically speaking. It's a piece of theatre. That's what it is. It's been practised as a piece of theatre. And it's a very effective piece of theatre. But it's not real. It can't be, can it? It can't be real. And another thing is, surely, there must be technical problems, too. You know, any kind of recording has technical problems and you have to redo things. So, uh, you know, yes. there's a breakdown of the link or there's some kind of um, screw-up with the camera or whatever. So, again, if you've started doing something where you claim you don't know what's about to happen you know i think it'd be very hard to then if you started from the top again to to give the impression that you it was completely virgin territory yeah don't you think yeah and also they they can't i mean they uh, they had, had great success with doing they did um them listening to dolly parton's jolene 
Yeah, how can they possibly have avoided hearing that? Well, I, don't, I Do find they... that I find that slightly easier to believe than Phil Collins in the air tonight. Charlene's very old record, you know, nineteen seventy-one, I think it is. Um, and you know, it's perfectly possible, you know, if you're born in I don't know, the, the early part of this century, not to have heard that. But in the air tonight, it's a very, very different kind of thing, I think. And also, once you've done it. You can't do another one. You can't say, oh, hello, here we are back again. Two weeks later, we found another classic that we've never heard before. You know what I mean? It's like virginity. You can only lose it once, can't you, yeah. really? Yeah. yeah. It, it's, uh, but it's... Uh, so you know, you're no. testing their honesty of saying that they haven't heard it before because presumably this must be... Uh, the ideas must come from their producer, mustn't it? Well, I don't know. It could be there. I, I, yeah, maybe. Yes, I suppose it's got to be. So it's got the to producer's be, saying, be third you, you've party. never heard this. Yeah, so let me try out a series of things on you. But as you say, I mean, <laughs> do they really then say halfway through, actually, I do know this and there's no point in that. It's not authentic anymore. <laughs> it's just wrong. It's, yeah. Uh, but but I'm sure Phil Collins is not, not complaining, you know, if it brings his... Uh, I know, I thought that was lovely. That there were so many hits who got it back in the charts. Although yeah. getting back in the charts doesn't require a huge number of hits. You, you and I get, a, get back in the charts. It does. It does get a certain amount of press. And it gets yeah. people talking about it, like, as we are now. So well, as we are now. The Word Podcast. Prime cuts of popular culture served fresh each week. So I was looking at this thing um, the other day about the the field of streams, where Green Man is going to is going to stream live various people who'd be playing at the festival, and uh, which kind of led me to look at the thing about Sam Fender. You, I think you saw this this guy Sam Fender, local hero uh, up in Newcastle, who played the the Gosforth Park, uh, and it was the first kind of well, I. I consider it probably genuinely successful socially distanced live event in that they had uh, 500 metal platforms uh, each space two meters apart they were like individual pods and you could have five people in each one and uh, there's a table and chairs and each one had its own fridge and you could you know you could pre-order all your drinks beforehand so it's kind of like a like a private box i mean it doesn't look well uh, appetizing in the pictures but it clearly worked you know and that 2500 people could sit there and watch a live event and uh, you know as we were uh, discussing the other day maybe what's happening here is there's just a massive shift in the balance of power because previously you had a situation where musicians were, you know, people were desperate to go and see them. And now they're in a position where they are desperate to get people to come and see. <laughs> yes. And so in the past, you could argue that what they were doing, a lot of it, although it was passed off as um, a part of the entertainment, and indeed it was, you know, the cantilevered walkways, the cherry picker cranes, you know, the, the fast pyrotechnics, Etc. The expensive home movies shown on the backdrops, all that—all that's part of the <clears throat> the package. But you could argue, I don't think it's unkind to do so. That that might have been a, a way of trying to justify playing such enormous venues. You know, you're playing. I mean, unless you're unless you're one of those groups that are about sound and spectacle, the Pink Floyd and then and the Grateful Dead being really good examples, where actually you know a seat at the back, as it were, of, of a big outside event. Was, was very, very attractive. I remember seeing the orb at Glastonbury and thinking, this is great being a long way away from this. I don't need to be near the front. But otherwise, you could argue that, that, that you know, that musicians are simply, you know, trying to uh, uh, come up with elaborate ways to justify playing somewhere absolutely enormous and, and charging a vast amount of money. I don't think that's right. I don't think there's any doubt that's what they've been doing. That's what they're doing. And that's what they've been doing for a long time. And, you, and you know, you say... You, you you make a distinction between the acts who offer a spectacle and the rest. I would suggest, you know, over the last 10 years, increasingly everybody has offered a spectacle because that's become a way of justifying the price you charge. You know, so that people don't go away from big gigs saying, do you know, I really like the version of so-and-so that they did, and I thought they got a really good vocal sound. I felt very warm the way she sang so-and-so. They don't. That's not how they do it at all. They go, well, did you see the fireworks? Did you see the, you know, the yeah. plane overhead? All that kind of bread and circuses aspect of the entertainment becomes immensely important when people aren't close enough 
to have got any of the more kind of intimate pleasures, if you might, if, if you put it that way. And so, and they're looking to respond to that too, because that's different from the experience of listening to the music at home. That's partly yeah. what you get by physically going to see somebody, you know, uh, live. You know, but I think. You see, I think this is quite significant. Well, it's obviously significant. What's happened at the moment is I think it's it's brought to a close what I call the age of spectacle. And I suppose the age of spectacle will have begun in the 80s. And I suppose yeah. one of the great jumping off points, and we've discussed it many times on this podcast, was Live Aid. Because one of the things that Live Aid did was it made loads of people sitting at home in front of their tellies thinking, suddenly looking at it, going, wow, live rock and roll, that looks... That looks attractive. attractive. That looks attractive. Blue sky, there's loads going on. It's, you know, there's no there's no boring bits, all that kind of stuff. I can sway my arms from one side to the other. That sounds like the kind of entertainment me and my family would really enjoy. And they duly did. And they paid increasing amount, sums of money as the acts at the same time increased the production values to justify the increasing sums of money. And so you got on this kind of mad ratchet effect in that, you know, you had got more expensive and then it got more elaborate and to pay for the extraordinary staging yeah. that you have never seen before, you know, where, where they, and what they're really trying to do is to make acceptable an entertainment experience, which at its root is really unsatisfactory. And everybody knew that back in, in the late 70s and the early 80s, before this became kind of standard. You know, we've talked about this before. Bruce Springsteen had never played outdoors until he played um, Slane Castle in, in Ireland. That's right, 1985. In, uh, 1985, he'd never done yeah. it. Nowadays, you can't imagine him doing anything but, really, you know, or, or any kind of acts of that magnitude. And so there was clearly a period where people thought, I will never get used to big outdoor gigs. And then there was a period where people said, I can't imagine not having outdoor, big outdoor gigs. Well, we've probably come to the end of that latter, latter period we have. now. And so what you've got with, with Sam Fender is quite interesting, is that you've got an outdoor gig, which is not big, really. I mean, it's a reasonable, I mean, yeah, we've only seen the photographs. It's a reasonable scale. But you're not going to be many miles away from it, are you? No, and, then, and the then number being, of people who went was about half the number of people who go to the Hammersmith Odeons, we used to call yeah, it. Okay. So, you know. and, and I thought, I, and, you know, I looked at it and thought, I thought, well, that looks a bit cold. <laughs> you know, that looks, um, it looks like a kind of an agricultural show with all the kind of <laughs> railings. In, you know, I go past all these pens where cattle are, are in. Yeah, the, the steam engines will be on in a moment. Yeah. <laughs> but then again, I thought, well, if I was there, I'd probably quite enjoy it. Once I got on my platform, on my seat, where I could see and all those kind, yeah, all exactly. those kind of rare luxuries. Raining. Yeah. Yeah, if it wasn't raining, as ever. But that's always going to be the case. But um, it's interesting. The other day, I, I had a great um, great adventure, Mark. You're going to be very envious of me. I went, to, I went to a pub. Didn't go in it. And sat outside the pub and, and had two pints of Guinness with our old friends and colleagues, Kate Mossman and Fraser Lurie. And, God, it was delightful. Right, just sitting outside the pub, just having two pints, I don't know, 90 minutes or whatever. And you know, one of the things that made it really delightful was that at regular intervals, the waitress would come out from the pub and say, Can I get you more drinks? And 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 then she'd duly go away and get them, but there. And you thought to yourself, you know, now normally, you know, if you're a summer evening outside a London pub. Your heart sinks when you get to the end of a drink and you have to go in and get around. Am I right? You know what Absolutely. I mean? You've got to do battle somehow with a bloody millions of people in there. And then you've got to carry back the order through the crowd and all that. And you thought, suddenly, this is now being changed. And it's like you're saying about gigs. For my convenience as the customer, they're having to do what makes me comfortable rather than me having to do what makes them make money. Now, I know it's really difficult. So we are momentarily in a good position, aren't we? In, in that they are absolutely desperate to, to, desperate well, to seduce yeah. us into going back and participate. And, and frankly, I wouldn't mind. I pay for that. 
I'll pay for that convenience, you know. And 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 probably the same thing would apply with gigs. And that, you know, you they, they they charge on the Sam Fender thing, they charge something a 20 pound charge per party to reserve the platform per party. Yeah. I wouldn't mind that at all. You know, if if you're going to go with your party and you're going to be guaranteed that they're going to be able to see... And no one's going to be spilling lager over your shoes. Absolutely. Even if they're shouting and singing along, you can't really hear them. And so, exactly. So I thought it looked rather, you know, obviously looked clinical. It didn't look like a rock and roll gig. And, uh, you know, because a lot of the appeal of rock and roll gigs is you're taking part in a photo opportunity, aren't you? Completely. You're making it look good. You're I making know. it look good for the acts and the promoter and so forth at the price of your own comfort. There have been moments in the care. past, I'm sure with you, where you thought this has got to change. I can remember going to see Bob Dylan at the O2 in 2009. I think there was a, I think it was a tube strike at the time because we certainly got, we had to get down there by boat. And we met some people on the boat who'd never seen Dylan before. They'd come down to London, first time ever, incredibly excited. And you're thinking, God, don't, you've left it a long time, and now you're seeing him in the O2. And Dylan clearly just tacked on an extra date because he's over here doing a series of smaller venues, you know. And he hadn't got any screens. So he played the O2 with no big screens and a fairly Uh modest sound system. So you could barely hear what was going on, and you certainly couldn't see a thing. And I just felt for these people thinking, how absolutely miserable is this experience? They've come down to London, they're having to stay in hotels for two yeah. nights. You know. And yeah. you think, there's, why, you know, we can't, we shouldn't put up with this. And now we're in a position where we're, we're, we're not having to put up with this because, you know, as I say, the, 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 the shift of power has changed. Hasn't it? And also, the, the shocking thing is that in the midst of this, where obviously loads of big tours have been cancelled, postponed, rolled over to next year, maybe the year after, who knows? In some cases, they've hung on to people's money, I which I think is pretty damn yeah. staggering. Yeah. When you consider how much money these go, these gigs cost. So effectively, you have lent, you know, a hundred pounds yeah. to, to band X. You They're know, behaving like airlines. Interest no lower form of. <laughs> well, really, you know, know, airlines don't charge as much as bands do. You know, and. Um, no, I think going back to what you say, I think there is there ought to be some tilt in the in the the kind of power relationship between the audience and the performer here, um, which I think will be no bad thing, because I think we've had a long time when where the power has been clearly in the other direction. And uh, I know I tell you the other thing that happened, and it's interesting. We go back to the Springsteen example, and Bob Dylan's a good example as well, and probably Paul McCartney and all these people. They have never been in the audience at these gigs. They don't know what it's like. That's, never, that's a really good point. They've never grown up, you know, going to gigs of that kind. When they grew up and they went to gigs, they went, went to, the, I don't know, the Finsbury Park Astoria or the, you know, I don't and know. And on the rare occasions, club. they would go and see a mate of theirs play a big venue. Presumably they'd be side of the stage or there'd be some kind of little box nearby. They and, certainly know. haven't had the experience that you have had in going to a big gig, which starts at kind of 10 o'clock in the morning, which is... Creeping anxiety. <laughs> it's <laughs> creeping anxiety. Nerves, nervous looks at the weather forecast. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, and, uh, and climaxes at sort of 10.30 in the evening where, where, where you're in a space where the band are supposedly transporting you to another dimension while really you're in there thinking, where did I park the car? That's right. God, <laughs> where, what time does the tubes close? Yeah. You know, it, what time does the babysitter leave? All those kind of things. You know, there's never been a greater kind of uh, contrast between the mindset of the people on stage and the mindset of the people in the audience. And surely, you know, live performance in rock and roll has changed regularly over 50, 60 years. Is it impossible that it might change again as a consequence of this? And that somebody might come up with a format which, which people are not going to look at and go, well, that's a reduced version of what I had before, but I don't mind doing it. They're or they might think, they might think this is better. This yeah. is an improved version. You know, so that, that's my challenge. Which they're going to have to, aren't they? And, it's going to, and also the circuit itself, it may be that it's not going to be much bigger than 3,000. I mean, it's possible, isn't it? 
maybe for, 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 for the foreseeable future, that's the absolute limit of how many people can be gathered together in one space to see anybody. And therefore, it will be the people who really want to go, I suppose. Although that will probably depend on how they disseminate the tickets. Because, you know, like we've said before, back in 1974 or whatever, the people who wanted to see Led Zeppelin were the people who went and queued outside Earl's Court all night to go and see Led Zeppelin. Because that's the only way you can do it. In the the days of, you know, checks and stamped address envelopes and postal orders and things sent to promoters and box officers and so forth. Nowadays, it's it's credit cards and mobile phones. And so, you know, people buy these things with as little thought, thought as they, you know, as they make a transaction at a bank or something. Uh, whereas it used to take a massive commitment in terms of time just to get the tickets in the first place. Who knows? That may return. Um, we, watch this space. This is a junction in the Word podcast. It separates that bit from this next bit. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Viewers and listeners, I cannot recommend more highly (laughs) (laughs) the upcoming book by preeminent music writer David Hepworth. Oh, here it is. There it is. One of my extraordinary twists of synchronicity. We happen to have a copy of that. Overpaid, (laughs) oversexed and over there. And and it's fantastic. I'm I'm reading at the moment. It's absolutely fantastic. And there's a bit that struck me. It's it's a really interesting point, which I never really dawned on me before is about the Stones' uh, 1965 American tour. And up to, which is, let's be honest, 55 years ago. And up till then, pretty much the majority of groups had played in uniform, hadn't they? They dressed the same. Yeah. You know, the Beatles, weirdly, the Beatles actually dressed in uniform their entire lives up until, yeah. didn't they? Up until yeah. the, uh, you know, the... the, the the, the Apple Roof performance. In yeah, I suppose that's true. Even, I mean, magical, even, even magical mystery. Magical mystery they're in they're actually in the uniform. <laughs> they're actually wearing a kind, yes. of, kind of. They're not identical, but it's yeah. in the same. That's kind of, so true. That's a really yeah. interesting tan- tangent, and that applied to most psychedelic groups. It was kind of motley, but it was it was uniform motley, yeah. wasn't it? it yeah. It's agreed what you're going to look like anyway. Yeah, yeah, he's wearing orange trousers. He's wearing lime green ones, but they're still psychedelic somehow. Yeah. They come yeah. as a package. You know, yeah. Nobody really stands out. But anyway, you made the point that the Stones dress as individuals. You know, they dress completely differently, and they also wore the same clothes that they were wearing all day. And so they just went on stage and dress up to go on stage, which is a deliberate part of the whole package. And I thought that was really, really interesting. And from then on, groups tended to have an individual look. Yeah, it's, re- it's really interesting. Yeah, they go on stage at the, the Academy of Music in New York in spring 19, 1965. And that's the thing that really strikes the audience where they walked on. Oh, look, they look as if they just walked in off the street. I mean, the likelihood is that they had got changed or something, but but they didn't they didn't wear a uniform because yeah. the um you know mu- all musical acts pretty much up to then had worn uniforms. You know, jazz groups wore uniforms, you know, classical musicians obviously wore uniforms. They wore, you know, evening dress, dinner jackets, whatever. You know, country and western groups dressed up as kind of cow hands yeah, yeah. or whatever. 
that's what you did. You, you know, that the, you that putting on the uniform said something about the music you were going to play. It was clearly a performance. And the same thing, you know, so all entertainers who appeared on television had uniforms. You know, acrobats had uniforms. Magicians had uniforms. Yeah, completely. Everybody had uniforms. And, um, and I can remember a huge part of the, the appeal of the Rolling Stones in the early days was, and I think it's something that gets forgotten, is that they were masters of television. They absolutely commanded the TV camera. They just looked straight back at the TV camera in a kind of surly, challenging way. And Jagger was particularly good at spotting Jagger one with the red light, brilliant, right, red light on it. Absolutely. Even better than Paul McCartney. He just yeah. kind of he just just keyed in to you. Absolutely. Held your attention. And he always, with every new uh, song, every new hit, they always had a he always had a little gesture that he would develop to to plug it, and you know all that stuff, all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. That's all television. That's all television. Yeah. It's not a stage thing. Yeah. And Satisfaction, I don't even remember this, when, when Charlie's famous uh, drum break came in Satisfaction, he always, uh, he always went as if to slap the camera. It was like... Yeah, 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 yeah. All that stuff. Yeah. Which every, like, 14... Hands. hands. All, well, that right. stuff, all that stuff, exactly. yeah. yeah. And, uh, and it was, uh, it was uh, meat and drink to 14, 15-year-old boys particularly who would then go and imitate it in the playground. You know, it was a bit of Mick Jagger you could kind of take home, you could do. But going back to the, the, the uniform, is that the beauty was that every time they appeared in a new picture or a new TV appearance, you'd look at what they were wearing. And it was just subtly varied, everything they were wearing. Yeah. And they clearly had a sense of chic. And there was no stylist to work at all, you know, but there were really interesting elements that they put together. And they must have cleared it with each other beforehand. Possibly. It must have, because nobody ever clashed, you know, there'd be, there'd be no. a little suede jacket and then the elephant they're, cords and the big buckle belt. Absolutely. Their, their trousers and their hips always looked really narrow. That was kind of part, that was their silhouette, you know. And this is in the days, obviously, before the flare. And so... And so bands, in terms of appearance, they went out the shoulders and then they went down tapered and narrowed. That's right. They tapered yeah. Yeah. to the to the little chisel toed shoes, or you know, or Brian Jones would have would have white shoes, or they would have uh, Mick Jagger would have like corduroy sneakers he'd wear. You know, well, yes, he tiny, did. Yeah, all these tiny bits of detail. You know, big belt buckles over yeah. you know short hipster trousers. And so it was just, there was a wealth of detail to focus on, but I don't think they intended to do it. I mean, if you look at the Rolling Stones very early on, they are wearing uniforms, you know, they, they had those hands tooth check suits that they wore very Cold early jackets. on, but yeah. they, they abandoned that. And, uh, and it was a big thing about them in America. And so I think, and the birds, who had been, it's quite interesting how all this happened, you know, the, 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 um, the, the birds looked at the Beatles in Hard Day's Night and said, that's what we want to look like. And so, I don't know, in the early days of the birds, were they wearing suits? They might have done. They were wearing suits. Yeah, and, and even when they kind of stopped, didn't they? Yeah, and even when it changed, they still looked, you know, when uh, David Crosby got the old the cape and everything, they still <laughs> looked kind of as part of the same kind of uniform visual set I suppose so. But, but if you consider... You know, you could argue that the, the Rolling Stones' greatest contribution to rock and roll is, is they influenced how people dressed. So 90% of bands ever since have followed in the footsteps of the Rolling Stones in that kind of trying to look as if they haven't been dressed by a professional, by a stylist. Yeah. Yeah. And their dress is supposedly an expression of their individuality, but it kind of fits together with the, the other four or five yeah. or whatever in the group. And so they invented that way of dressing. So, you know. Anyway. So other big inventions, other big pivotal changes? Oh, I'm saying Louis Armstrong. Louis oh, Armstrong God. invented the solo. Did he really? Yeah, because I don't think before Louis Armstrong people played solos. I think what they did is they played sections of 24 bars or whatever. So you play the riff, and then you play a different arrangement of the riff, playing from sheet music, 
and you play just a little just 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 varieties of the same thing with the yeah. vocal sections or whatever and then you'd wind up but basically the group knew exactly what they'd be playing all the way through the song and louis armstrong invented the idea that he initially and eventually other members of the group would go off and take that 24 hours 24 bars and improvise and so which is a very clever way also of extending sets so you can make a song that was normally on sheet music quite quite short you could you could extend it kind of indefinitely if you wanted to and I'm fairly sure that that's where that started. And no, that the yeah, idea yeah, of the solo was right. a jazz thing, and then obviously if it started in jazz, it was then copied immediately in about 1966 or whatever by, uh, by, by, by the lead, the arrival yeah. of the lead guitarist. Yeah, yeah. So that's the pivotal moment. But, but it's also, that, you, you also, you can only feature, I mean, Louis Armstrong's records, or Louis, as we should say. Louis, actually, yeah. Um, he, you know, he, he plays with King Oliver, doesn't he? And and then then he goes out on his own, and his records are credited as Louis Armstrong, Louis Armstrong in his Hot Five or Hot Hot Seven or whatever. So he is credited as the leader. Therefore, he has to play a solo. Yeah, it's he? expected exactly because all if all you hear him is just him chiming in with everybody else. Yeah, it's your change. Then worst, yeah, you're not getting any money. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it, no, it's funny. It's and funny. another one, surely the Kinks. I, I would say you really got me. Go on. Uh, you really got the invention of, of, of the riff. I mean, if you think of things the Beatles did, you know, the Beatles did, um, you know, um, paperback writer and stuff like that. But uh, it's, not those, riff. Those, it's not a riff. It's not a riff. No, Kinks is a riff. The Beatles, Kinks yeah, a riff. You're, quite right. you're quite right. The Beatles don't do riffs, do they? No, really? I'm thinking the Beatles are winning. I'm thinking Day Trip. I'm thinking Day Tripper. Oh, Day Trip, yeah. Oh, day, sorry, Day Trip. Beatles did do riffs, yeah, but not till, and then went on to do, you know, um, you know, Birthday and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, before that, no, not really riffs. But the Kinks did invent that idea of, the, of what I think heavy metal musicians would call a linear riff. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's that was transformational. Yeah. So this is, is a good series. We got three. We've got three. So the Rolling Stones invented the, the band way of dressing. Yeah. Louis Armstrong yep. invented the solo. The Kinks invented the riff. Can there be any more? Well, I think we're going to have to leave that to the massive to decide whether there are any more. And if there are any more, get in touch with us. At, uh, how do we get in touch, Alex? Can you chime in, Alex? Can you shout, Alex? I certainly can. Hello. Hey, hey, hey look, listen, viewers. Alex has, has materialised. Go on, what's the email address, Alex? Hi, everybody. Uh, the email address is wiye.london at gmail.com. Say that again, Alex. wiye.london at gmail.com. Get you heard it here first, kids. So we've had to reveal that all these all this time we've been recording there's been a there's been a, a ghostly presence <laughs> in the background, muted. You're presiding over everything. Yeah. I'd love you to welcome him. And after after this, Alex will be uh, playing as a series of records and filming as well. We pretend that we've never heard them. And uh, <laughs> Listen to the Phil the, Collins. The, yeah, Phil Collins. Yeah. So you you sent me this thing this morning about uh, about hypnosis, not the um, not the designers, not but the design the, people responsible, the music the publishers, the music publishers of the same name. Yeah, it's an interesting story. It's a guy called Merck Mercuriadis, who I think yeah. you probably remember back in the old, back in the, in the music industry. He started, started Sanctuary and then he started uh, this thing called Hypnosis. And they're just buying huge numbers of song catalogues. I, I got the impression that they have big chunks of Morrissey and Elton John and Blondie and Sheik and Ed Sheeran and Drake, Kanye West. I think got 37 big catalogues. I'm sure more, actually. And, 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 and obviously doing really well. The year before last, they made $8.5 million. Last year, they made $81 million. Is that, is, that, is that turnover or profit? I think that's profit, yeah. That's My profit. God. Right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And they're spending inordinate amounts. It struck me that part of the reason for that, I think, is that musicians in the current climate are slightly panicked by the idea of they don't know what their catalogue will actually deliver for them in the future. There was a time when you could think, well, that will be fine and I'll be touring that forever and I'll be promoting that material and I'll be making money out of it for a long time to come. But but I'm not so sure that security is there anymore. And so people are, are, are being, are being you know, deciding to sell their <coughs> entire catalogue, something everyone sought to avoid so strenuously before, didn't they? 
Well, except that there have been exceptions. I mean, because um, I think Courtney Love sold 25% of Nirvana quite a few years ago um, because, you know, somebody will come along and give you, you know, $10 million or whatever, whatever it is, which is nice to have. Of course, then <laughs> if you live long enough, you live to see it being worth about $100 million and you should have... You should have held out, but you know who's to know. Who's and to know? It was like you wrote a great piece in Word. I remember about Kimberly Rue's catalogue. Kimberly Rue who wrote uh, going down to Liverpool and, and walking, on, walking sunshine. on sunshine. Yeah, and uh, you know the the, the 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 big Eurovision winner too. Love yeah. shine the light, wasn't it? I mean, on the basis of those three songs, really. I mean, he sold his catalogue for something like twenty million. Well, I don't think it was got that much, but you know they they. they, they but they managed it for very, very long time between them and uh, yeah. you know, continued to get good money out of Walking on Sunshine because they, they control the recording yeah. and control the song. And, and what this is about, all this, is your catalogue is there and unless somebody really works it and somebody, somebody really promotes it, tries to make sure you get um, picked up for sync rights on the new so-and-so movie or, you know, using a commercial. Unless somebody really works it, you've no control over whether it's going to be worth a decent amount of money and an awful lot of money. And so the idea why people sell 25% or 50% is they go and find a partner who, who says, no, I can get more out of this. Catalog. So those guys are going out there aggressively what, saying to kind of, uh, you know, the people who well, are making they're movies. Working. They're just working it. Yeah. They're just yeah. working it. And, you know, they're, they're, they're trying to make sure they're part of the thinking process, you know, so that so the, the holy grail in this area, from my understanding, is if you can get great catalogs from the 70s or the 80s that have been underexploited, that people haven't really thought about, that haven't turned up on loads of movie soundtracks, and, and you can work that stuff, you can pay quite a lot of money to the rights holder for a percentage of it, and, uh, and, uh, and you'll see a profit out of it. But it's, it's, a, you know, it's a gamble like anything, because you know, the, you know, the, look what's happening in cinema at the moment. You know, they can't even get movies put out in, exactly. in cinemas. <laughs> So you know, guarantee what yeah. those kind of revenues are, 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 going to, are going to be in the future. But also, if you're seventy-year-old rock star, you're sitting there thinking, "What's most important to me? I pass this on to my children, feckless ne'er do wells, whatever." <laughs> yeah, who might run it into the ground anyway? Well, they might, or they might, or they might not it. earn any money from it, or it or might they, not they, be worth much money. Or they years. might earn a lot of money from it, or. Right now, I can get, I can have $20 million. Yeah, and I can Thank you very much. Yeah, I <laughs> know that I've won. Exactly. <laughs> and um, I think that's, uh, that's kind of uh, one of the things that happens. I think there's loads of really interesting, you know, um, negotiations of that, of that kind going on absolutely all the time because, you know, Pop music. I mean, you find loads of cases of this, don't you? If you look back to the sixties, and people let their rights go because they thought, well, it can't be worth that much money. You know, if somebody's going to give me give me five thousand dollars right now, that's a damn good deal. Never thinking that fifty, sixty years down the down the track, that could be earning fortunes still. But there's no guarantee. Which is why the people who were particularly canny, Dave Clark and the Dave Clark Five being a really good example, I think, were so impressive. I think Dave Clark just looked at all that and thought, this is this is this will this could last. And don't also say, I'm I going don't... to I'm gonna I'm gonna and he bought up the rights to all sorts of things, didn't he? Ready well he bought he bought Ready Steady Go. He and Dave Clark owns the sixties. Yeah. Um but but he only could buy it because he was so canny with his money during the time of the Dave Clark Five. He he made his own records. You know the, the, the records came out in EMI. That's right. He made the records, then took them to EMI and said, Do you want to put this out?" Yeah, he he was the first indie rock star. You know, strange that made made two thirds more profit well, on it. Well, he, he? So he probably kept more 
than yeah. anybody else. You know, yeah. it's difficult to say whether he made more than the Beatles or Jerry and the Postmakers or whatever. But he, I guarantee you, he yeah. will have kept more and probably looked after it more. And um, and so he was able to invest in you know West End sh- stage shows, you know, things like that. Remember that musical time that ran? Yeah, 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 yeah. He's very successful at that kind of thing, and and you know bought all the, uh, but bought pretty much all the footage of uh, of Ready Steady Go. So you know he was a, he was a very he was a cannier operator than um, than a lot of the people in the sixties. But it's that whole thing, business about about commercials really interests me because um, I wrote the thing about this as you say in word. Um, that when you hear Donovan on uh, commercials, which you do not infrequently, or you certainly did a few years ago, you did, you know, because a lot of Donovan songs, you know, there's Mellow Yellow, there's Sunshine, Superman, yeah. and there's There Is a Mountain, there's all and they those. They were huge hits. They were huge hits. They've got a lovely sound to them. Well, they, they're all pretty much all. He's re recorded them. He's re recorded them probably in his 50s or 60s, because then. If people come to him for the song, he says, yes, you can have the song, but only if you use my recording. Which is so what then, squeezed it, didn't it? So then, no, he's not, quite a lot of people then he's not giving half the money to buy yeah, records. Yeah. Um, or more than half the money to buy records. I, I don't know what. But his, those versions that he re-recorded had to be absolutely note perfect. Oh, yeah, yeah, original. yeah. I mean, they had to sound exactly like it. Yeah, and, and within the commercial. they wouldn't have wanted will, it. No, yeah. absolutely. They don't, want, they don't want something that sounds markedly different. Um, but uh, yeah, nobody, nobody saw any of that coming. The Word Podcast. What's wrong with being sexy? Well, we have another classic podcast available from the vaults, uh, the which vaults. is pod, the, the vaults. <laughs> what is the vaults? That's what everyone always used to say, the vaults, didn't they? They when, did. when records were released, people always found old tapes that have been in the vaults yeah. somewhere, the vaults. collecting <laughs> dust. Yeah, and were suddenly as if they hadn't been just poised, ready for for a hugely commercial. No, and now it's even years. worse. They're consumed by fire, aren't they? In the universal music. That's uh, right. That's right. Liberation. Anyway, go on, carry yeah. on. But we've got another uh, classic pod re uh, re available, and uh, it was recorded in fact in my kitchen after the after the word Christmas party, and it features. What, Dave, what year are we talking about now? Do you think that would you have know. been? It would have been about two thousand and. An eight, would you say? Oh, right. Okay. I would oh, imagine Okay, so. go on. And it's about bands that we used to be enthusiastic about, but we're not enthusiastic about <laughs> anymore. So that, well worth uh, well worth hearing. Uh, bands are ugly groups. Well, because that's a, a so, subject that's returned recently when we were talking to Simon Mayo, weren't we, about who were the ugliest groups. And weirdly, we mentioned the, the very same culprits, Crabby Appleton, who was described in this as having a, a, having hair like exploded mattresses. There they are. <laughs> there they are. I've got a picture Listen, of it. This relax, flat, but, girls. But the benefit of any Patreon supporters are actually seeing this as, as opposed to merely hearing this. You can see the full splendor of Crabby Appleton. One at a time, <laughs> ladies. Take a ticket. <laughs> Take a ticket. Um, there's the there's a news mania uh, item about how prog rock is back. There's a thing about Tower Records closing and the various uh, nostalgic stages of the of the development of the record shop and uh, gigs of the year. Amazingly, Lily Allen and uh, not uh, not amazing in Lucinda Williams' case. But Lily Allen, I remember going to see Lily, Lily mm-hmm. Allen her first gig. I think it was absolutely amazing. And uh, there's a a, a, a a thing about the a philosophical thing about the future of gigs and how they might eventually um, uh, acquire some of the characteristics of classical music. And I think we, we, you, Dave, were yeah. probably right. I think that's right, you see, because the whole business of billing what you're about to yeah, yeah, yeah. hear before you hear it. So that you've got access to if you're one of our Patreon supporters. And, uh, and please do consider the benefits of being a Patreon supporter. You can take part in our Friday night quiz, which is hotting up. It takes place, about six, takes place at 6 o'clock every Friday evening. You also get the opportunity to be in the room, so to speak, as we start recording more word in your ear uh, conversations with authors. We did one a few weeks ago with Graham Thompson about his John Martin book. Coming up, we're doing Joe Banks talking about his Hulkwin book. We've got Kenneth Womack joining us from the United States. Kenneth Womack, who previously was on word in your ear talking about George Martin. We'll be talking about his book about the last year of John Lennon and looking further forward, we've got Justin Quirk talking about glam metal 
So all these benefits and more can be yours if you go and look uh, at patreon.com slash word in your ear and find out more about them. So we're just going to leave you with... Uh, oh, we should bit. mention the new patrons. Oh, God, yes, of course. Yeah, the various people that have signed up, bless them. We're enormously grateful. So many thanks to Thomas Hewitt, yes. to uh, Ayala O'Halloran, uh, to Mike Gola, and to Nick Maroney. Brilliant. Very, very Much nice. Appreciated. Very Paul nice to have you. them on board. And, uh, you know, why not add your name to that role yeah. of honour in weeks to come? Um, I'm, we're very grateful to Owen Parker, our friend Owen Parker, a uh, friend of the pod and musician, who heard us ranting in a recent pod about the attempts to barrelerize, rewrite the lyrics of uh, Robbie Robertson the night they drove old Dixie down. And, uh, you know, he took some of our fulminations and set them to music. <laughs> we'll leave you with this. You know, oh, God, what do you begin with this? Unlike my father, who I will never understand. Unlike the others below me, you took the rebel stand, framed and pallid to enslave. But it's time we laid hate in its grave. If you don't want to sing The Night That Drove Old Dixie Down, I've got a really novel idea for you. Don't sing it. Yeah, dare he, you know, trample on my relationship with The Night That Drove Old Dixie Down by, you know, putting any stupid ideas. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com 